The sound science supposedly is on their side, but really it's, uh, it's hypocrisy because the scientific consensus on global, global warming is overwhelming. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrogi from... uh Sunny, then rainy, then sunny, then rainy, Massachusetts. I write uh, legal blog watch for law.com and also my own blogs, Law Sites and Media Law. And Craig, I know you write some blogs too. Well, at least one, Bob. And now that I look outside, I guess it's uh, kind of partly cloudy here. But in any event, uh, I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and I have a book out called How to Get Sued. Today's show is sponsored by Clio, a web-based practice management software for lawyers at goclio.com and Landy Insurance for legal malpractice at landy.com. Well, in a landmark decision in Connecticut versus American Electric Power Company, the Second Circuit and the United States Court of Appeals sided with a group of eight states, the City of New York and various environmental groups, who had filed a public nuisance lawsuit against five of the nation's biggest coal-burning utilities to cap and reduce their carbon emissions. Today, we're going to dissect Connecticut versus AEP, get reaction from both sides of this landmark case, uh, and discuss the role of Congress and the EPA and how this decision will impact power companies as well as future environmental litigation. And to do that, we've got two guests. Our first guest today is attorney Matthew F. Pawa from the law offices of Matthew F. Pawa, P.C., Matt is one of the attorneys who represented the land trusts in Connecticut versus AEP. His experience covers a wide range of law practice areas, including environmental groups. He's an adjunct professor at Boston College Law School, where he teaches climate law and policy. Uh, Attorney Pawa has pioneered the use of common law tort doctrines, such as public nuisance and global warming. Welcome to Lawyer Lawyer, uh, Attorney Pawa. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Joining us next today is Attorney Thomas J. Hyden, a partner in the Chicago office of Latham & Watkins. Mr. Hyden's practice focuses on complex and high-profile lawsuits, including high-stakes energy, utility, resource, and business tort disputes. Among the clients Mr. Hyden has represented in recent years are GenCorp, Commonwealth Edison, and New England Power. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Attorney Tom Hyden. Hi, Bob. Hi, Craig. Hi, Matt. Matt, since you were directly involved with the case, let's start with you. Give us some background on the uh, Connecticut versus AEP case. Connecticut versus AEP is a case we filed in 2004, we being a group of state attorneys general, the city of New York, and my role in it is representing some land trusts. And we filed two very similar complaints uh, at the same time in district court, federal district court in New York City. Um, and we alleged uh, against the five largest emitters of greenhouse gases at that time in the country, all electric power companies, that they were engaged in contributing to a public nuisance, that global warming is a public nuisance and that their massive emissions of greenhouse gases contribute directly to that nuisance. Uh, They together emit, uh, at that time, as alleged in our complaint, 650 million tons of carbon dioxide a year, uh, which uh, was fully 10% of all 
anthropogenic greenhouse gases uh, or carbon dioxide emitted uh, in the United States. So five companies, 10% of all uh, industrial U.S. CO2 emissions uh, was the target of the lawsuit. And uh, again, it was invoking a, a common law public nuisance. And one thing that's interesting and perhaps a little bit different about the case is that it invokes the federal common law of public nuisance as its primary theory. And it only invokes state law in the alternative for reasons I can get into later. Um, and uh, the case seeks only injunctive relief. It doesn't seek monetary damages. It seeks uh, a court order that would require these companies to cap and then reduce their emissions uh, over a period of years. Well, the case is being talked about as as uh, being somewhat of a landmark uh, in at least allowing these uh, these cases to go forward. Um, what's what's your initial response? to the decision of the Second Circuit? Well, I think there are two responses. I think the response outside of the courtroom, outside of lawsuits, is that uh, the big power companies and others are going to have to face up to the inevitability of climate change regulation uh, by the regulators or by the Congress uh, and caps on overall greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, In the courthouse or in the courtroom, I think it's likely uh, that utilities and other companies are going to be sued uh, now for public nuisance uh, with those lawsuits asking for large damage awards and injunctions and, and abatement. So I think from the litigation point of view on the defense side, there's going to be more lawsuits uh, brought by more plaintiffs uh, against more defendants. Is it an opening of the floodgates? I mean, or do you anticipate... Uh, an outpouring of of litigation resulting from this decision? I don't think that the utilities and the companies are going to be in a situation where they panic. Uh, The Second Circuit's opinion says that certain plaintiffs have a cause of action in nuisance against certain defendants. I think maybe for Matt, uh, we ought later get into uh, who these plaintiffs are likely to be and who the defendants are likely to be. But in the sense of whether or not there's really a floodgate of litigation, it seems to me there are an awful lot of ifs here. If this decision is followed by the other federal courts, if there's no legislation or regulation to totally displace federal tort law, if the plaintiffs can meet what's still a very stiff three-pronged standing test, uh, if the plaintiffs can meet their burden of proof uh, under Section 821 of the Restatement of Torts for nuisance, uh, if the plaintiffs uh, can prove causation in fact that the acts of these defendants actually caused any climate change, and if the plaintiffs can uh, prove uh, damages or harm approximately caused by the defendants. So uh, will there be more litigation? Sure. Is there a floodgate that's opened here? Uh, I'm not convinced that there is. Matt, how does this case rank in the scheme of global warming cases? Is this one of the first? Uh, have there been other ones? What, do we, what can we expect? Well, this is, uh, so far as I know, the first global warming tort case in American law. Um, and, you know, interestingly, the defendants tried to argue that we were inventing a new tort doctrine, you know, global warming nuisance. 
because no one had ever uh, challenged global warming before as a public nuisance. But uh, that was kind of a nonsensical argument that didn't really go anywhere in the case because, um, you know, any kind of conduct that's an unreasonable interference with public rights and, and environmental pollution and environmental harms generally are classic public nuisances. We, we were not and are not trying to invent new law. Quite the contrary. Uh, the case seeks to invoke ancient doctrines of public nuisance that have always applied. Um, I think I agree with Tom to the extent that I don't see the floodgates uh, necessarily opening because I, I think there are high hurdles for plaintiffs who want to just file a suit to begin with. Uh, these are, you know, complex uh, cases, and they take a long time to litigate. And it really requires a plaintiff uh, who has few options to file such a case, and uh, and a plaintiff that uh, you know needs relief. Um, and and the number of plaintiffs or potential plaintiffs around the world, I think, is definitely going to increase as global warming now starts accelerating, and inevitably starts accelerating to some degree. And I think that, that plaintiffs will emerge from around the world in various places and file suits in U.S. courts. I don't think that the Second Circuit decision opens the floodgates so that we're going to see those, those cases being filed in the next few weeks. But I think over the next few years, now that we've seen that this is a viable legal theory, for sure you're going to see uh, both domestic plaintiffs from the United States and from abroad uh, invoking this doctrine of U.S. tort law because they are being uh, severely damaged. And in some cases, um, their way of life is being completely compromised. And, and I represent one such uh, uh, group like that, and that is the native village of Kivalina, which has filed a global warming tort case in California. And that is a, an Inupiat Eskimo village uh, located in Alaska that is going to have to relocate or cease to exist because of global warming's damaging effects on their community, and in particular, it's melting of the sea ice. So I don't think we're going to see an immediate opening of the floodgate, but I do think there will be more damages cases from Kivalina-type plaintiffs that have uh, you know, monetary claims because their way of life is being completely destroyed by global warming. Tom, how does the aspect of, of global warming as kind of junk science enter into this equation? Well, there are other interesting cases uh, out there in addition to uh, AEP and uh, Kivalina. Uh, a couple of years ago, the state of California sued six of the car companies uh, for causing or contributing uh, to global climate change. And in the aftermath of uh, Katrina, uh, there were several lawsuits uh, filed against uh, oil and chemical companies alleging that they had contributed to climate change, which exacerbated the effects of the hurricane. In both of those cases, uh, the case was dismissed because the courts determined that those uh, were not something uh, that should be addressed by a court, but rather that they involved political questions that should be uh, addressed by one of the other two uh, branches of government. I think from the trial lawyer's point of view that your question uh, hits the mark of, for one of the huge uh, challenges or, or burdens for, for the plaintiffs, uh, whoever they may be, and that is uh, to actually prove, demonstrate, uh, under the rules of evidence, 
uh, that some act of uh, the defendants named in the case actually actually caused or contributed to climate change. And I think that's just going to be a huge uh, hurdle and a difficult, difficult burden for them to prove, in fact. Matt, do you see it that way? Uh, well, you'll be unsurprised to hear that, that I have a very different view. Um, let me take those in reverse order. On the question of whether or not the global warming science will be sufficient to stand up into court, it, to stand up in court, uh, I think that is actually easy. Uh, there has been probably no problem uh, in the history of humankind that has received greater, more careful, more cooperative, more worldwide, and, and a more thorough scientific scrutiny than the problem of global warming. And uh, the, the scientific research on this question is overwhelming and is overwhelmingly clear. And in fact, I had the privilege of being involved in one case in federal district court in Vermont, where we introduced extensive global warming science, and the automobile companies challenged it under Daubert, and they lost. And uh, that was a case in which the automobile companies were suing the state of Vermont to try to strike down the state's greenhouse gas regulations. And uh, I was representing environmental groups that intervened to help uh, the state defend the law. So, uh, you know, I would refer folks who are interested in that issue to that opinion. It's a very thorough uh, opinion, hundreds of pages, a portion of which goes into um, questions of the global warming science and finds that it is admissible. Um, you know, as to the overall question of causation, you know, our burden is to prove that these defendants contribute to global warming and that global warming causes the harm. We don't have to trace molecules. And I think there's a, there's a misperception among many people that, that uh, in a pollution case, you need to trace molecules. You really don't. It's, uh, it's a question of an indivisible injury. And there's a clear rule in tort law of the indivisible injury rule that says where you have multiple polluters or other tort feasors contributing to an indivisible harm, you don't have to untangle whose molecules are whose or whose causation is whose, because by the very nature of an indivisible injury, you can't do that, and it's not the plaintiff's burden to do so. So I do have a different view on on the science and on the causation, and, and in particular, um, going back to the, the earlier uh, issue, the, the question that, that gave rise to, to this answer, um, I think I, I heard a question about junk science. And um, it's interesting that, that you use that term because junk science has been thrown at global warming uh, scientists who you know, have done peer-reviewed scientific work in a sort of unfair fashion, in my view. And um, the more interesting term is sound science. And if you Google sound science, you'll find that sound science was originally used by the tobacco companies and by their trade associations to try to, um, to claim that the, 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 uh, the arguments in favor of limitations on smoking were unfounded because smoking wasn't uh, as bad for you as they said or bad for you at all. And that, uh, that idea of sound science uh, used as a PR tactic was then picked up by the fossil fuel companies, and they've been making the same kind of argument um, that, uh, you know, the, the sound science supposedly is on their side, but really it's, uh, it's hypocrisy because the scientific consensus on global, global warming is overwhelming, and the true sound science is on our side. So uh, we look forward to those kinds of court battles, and they've already been, uh, they've already been waged in at least one case.
I, I won't respond to uh, uh, the use of the word hypocrisy, uh, but I think that the uh, defendants who have excellent trial lawyers uh, in a courtroom uh, will not debate whether the climate is changing, but rather will put the plaintiffs to their proofs that the acts of the defendants in the case caused the climate to change. And I think that uh, the real battles in the courtroom uh, will be waged uh, there. And I think that's going to be very, very difficult. And to be clear, I'm not accusing Tom of hypocrisy. I'm I'm accusing the fossil fuel companies that have used this term, sound science, of that. I wonder, we we have uh, in the Second Circuit opinion a a 139-page opinion with with a table of contents to guide us through it. I'm wondering if you could sum up for us what the the key legal rulings were in this case. I mean, this is a ruling uh, on an appeal from a, a, a dismissal of a case uh, on, as I understand it, the primary reason for the dismissal of the case at the district court level was that uh, the judge uh, said that this was a, a non-justiciable political issue uh, and uh, therefore not appropriate uh, for litigation at this point. Um is that right? Can you explain how the Second Circuit addressed that? Uh, the Second Circuit addressed the political question and found uh, that there, the case does not present a political question, which, which to me was no surprise. The defendants did not argue political question in the district court. Uh, the district court found there was a political question, uh, but the defendants were quite, quite clear that that was not the basis of their motions to dismiss. And in fact, uh, after the judge sua sponte dismissed the case, uh, she denied the defendants' motions to dismiss as moot, which sort of highlighted the fact that they did not argue political question. The, the essence of the political question argument, which the defendants did uh, pick up on in the court of appeals, and, and you know, it did uh, uh, come to the defense of the district court ruling, was this notion that because. Uh, the political branches, Congress and uh, EPA and, and the president, had not uh, set limits on CO2 emissions. No one else could do so, in particular, the judiciary couldn't do so. And we were able to show that that, that would really be an expansion of the political question doctrine. In particular, it would turn the law of federal preemption of, of federal common law on its head, which requires the exact opposite of, of uh, a failure to act. It requires actual CO2 regulations, which is exactly what the, the Second Circuit has now held would be required to eliminate a federal tort remedy for global warming. And, and so the political question uh, to me always seemed like a heads I win, tails you lose. If, if the political branches act and start regulating CO2, you're preempted. But if they don't act, it's a political question and you lose anyway. And, and the Second Circuit uh, has essentially agreed with us that that's not the way this works. And uh, they also found it was not preempted because there has been a failure to regulate. As as I read this, it seems to me that the hundred and some pages can be reduced to three uh, basic but important propositions. And I think that uh, Matt uh, outlined them pretty well. Uh, one is the rejection of the political question argument or issue. The second is granting uh, some governmental entities uh, standing, both parents patriae and as landowners. 
And third uh, is to say that there is a federal common law cause of action for public nuisance available uh, because it has not been totally displaced by the Clean Air Act. And I think uh, that those are the three main propositions, and I think for those of us who are likely to be in courtrooms, that those each of those is, is important. Let's talk about the practical effects of this thing. Uh, Matt, what do you expect these utilities are going to have to do to comply with the ruling? Uh, well, <laughs> they're going to have to acknowledge that they are subject to suit in public nuisance under federal common law, and, uh, for example, submit to discovery, um, and the case moves forward. Some of the defendants have challenged personal jurisdiction, so those motions, I'm sure, will uh, be up next and will have to be litigated. Um, but assuming the court has personal jurisdiction over all five defendants, it's unquestionable that it does as to at least one of them, uh, then uh, you know we go to discovery. And, and I, I don't think the defendants, now that they've lost virtually every basis of their Rule 12 motions to dismiss, standing, preemption, everything else, uh, have any uh, basis to oppose discovery. I do understand the defendants are going to be taking a run at uh, rehearing on Bonk or perhaps a cert petition. Uh, so those will be the next uh, briefs we'll see from the defendants. Well, it's time for us to take a short break, and we return. We'll look at the impact of environmental litigation and the next steps with this landmark decision. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional, 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Protect your legal practice with Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency and feel confident that your professional liability insurance provides the best possible coverage for the best possible price. Whether you are establishing a new firm, adding an attorney to your team, or exploring new options for your existing firm, Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency can match your specific needs with experience unmatched in the industry. Visit us at www.landy.com for a convenient online application or call us at 800-336-5422 for prompt and personal attention. Your practice deserves the best. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're back with Attorney Matthew F. Pawa from the Law Offices of Matthew F. Pawa, PC, and Attorney Thomas J. Hyden, a partner in the Chicago Law Office of Latham & Watkins. Tom, right before the break, we were discussing the practical aspects. What's your perspective on what the utility is going to have to do to comply with this decision? The utilities don't have to do uh, anything to comply with the decision because, as Matt just said, th this case is still at a very preliminary stage, and as I understand it, discovery hasn't even uh, begun, much less uh, a trial on the merits with a judgment uh, against any of the defendants. But I think that this uh, puts really quite a bit of uh, pressure on industry and on the regulators and perhaps uh, even on the Congress uh, to see whether or not uh, there ought be 
some relatively uh, bold congressional or regulatory action uh, to implement a climate change program, at least one uh, purpose of which would be to displace uh, these very types of claims. And for industry uh, itself, I think that industry needs to think about whether or not they are going to come out opposing uh, federal climate uh, change legislation, or that maybe uh, this will be an impetus uh, to do the opposite, and that it may have the opposite effect, and that at least some parts of industry uh, would prefer to see uh, predictable uh, regulation uh, rather than litigation with courts on a case-by-case basis, uh, possibly uh, fashioning uh, inconsistent and expensive remedies in the case of of the event that the plaintiffs prevail. So I think it puts a fair amount of pressure on industry, uh, as well as on the regulators and uh, and on the Congress. What are those remedies? The the plaintiff's complaint says that these the defendants in this case are the five largest emitters of carbon dioxide in the United States and among the largest in the world. Uh, Matthew, what are the plaintiffs looking for in, in a remedy in this case? We're looking for an injunction that would force these companies to do what they should have done 20 or more years ago, which is start reducing their greenhouse gas emissions before they kill the climate and the ecology of the entire planet upon which all human civilization depends. It's uh, it's a fairly uh, straightforward process uh, to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, for example, by uh, using uh, biomass and co-firing it in coal-fired power plants, uh, ramping up your portfolio of renewables and your portfolio of your, your power plants across uh, across your entire portfolio. I mean, these companies, you know, together on something like 170 plants, and they could have a lot more solar and wind in their portfolio. So they could begin reducing emissions uh, tomorrow, uh, be far beyond anything they've done so far. And, uh, you know, instead they have spent, you know, most of the last 10, 15, 20 years uh, or more uh, fighting all attempts uh, to impose reasonable limits on their CO2 emissions. And, uh, you know, some of them have engaged in campaigns to really distort the science. And, you know, I again refer you to you know the advancement of sound science coalition and these other these other front groups that that uh, um, have have badly distorted the public debate. So you know we want them to do something that should have been done a long time ago, um, and that is to reduce their emissions. Well, some some of the companies, some of the utilities, some of the energy companies, some regular old-fashioned manufacturers have spent enormous sums of money over the last several decades to reduce. Uh, pollutants and contaminants of every sort. And I think part of the problem here is that on the plaintiff's side of this, that they suggest a series of various and competing uh, technologies uh, that be implemented. Uh, Some of those are relatively untested. Uh, Some of those are incredibly expensive and will require incredibly uh, large amounts of capital uh, to implement. So in that respect, I think that the remedy side of this uh, probably should be addressed uh, on a uniform basis uh, by regulators and or by the Congress uh, rather than on a one-by-one basis 
uh, around the courthouses of this country, although it's in those courthouses that I make my living. Uh, and I and I think that uh, all of this has to be done against the backdrop of what uh, the actual cost is going to be uh, and who's ultimately going to bear that cost. Well, gentlemen, we have finally reached the end of our program where it's time to wrap up, get your final thoughts and your contact information for our listeners. So, Matthew, let's start with you. Uh, my contact information is up on my law firm's website, www.pawalaw.com. Great. And your final thoughts about our discussion this morning? Uh, well, uh, I, I think my final thoughts is that is that I... I uh, I continue to wonder why industry is always talking about how expensive it is to to uh, do the right thing, and and you know the historical record is clear that those kinds of costs are always vastly overestimated in advance. And uh, for example, the car companies in 1970 said they were going to go out of business if they had to use catalytic converters, um, and yet once the rules were imposed, it became very cheap to do so. So my, my thought is, you know, why didn't we get going 20 years ago? And let's get going on these kinds of emissions reductions now. And Tom, your contact information and final thoughts. I, I think that the case uh, does open the door to lots of lawsuits against lots of defendants. It exposes utilities and other companies uh, to lots of claims uh, for greenhouse gases it should influence the Congress and regulators to regulate uh, all of this to totally displace uh, federal tort law of nuisance. It may influence utilities and other companies to ask for legislation or regulation, at least in part to escape that tort exposure. And many companies are pushing for predictable federal greenhouse gas regulation and legislation right now. In the courtroom, uh, it will be a challenge. I think that the uh, utilities uh, are going to have to hire excellent trial lawyers, and I think the utilities are going to have to put uh, the plaintiffs and their theories and their facts uh, to the test of proof. Uh, my name is uh, Tom Hyden, uh, Thomas uh, Hyden, H-E-I-D-E-N, at LW.com. Uh, I enjoy this a lot. Well, thank you. And, Bob, that about does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. For our listeners, remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. Let me add my thanks to uh, Matt Pawa and Thomas Hyden for their time uh, and thoughtfulness. We'll we'll stay tuned and follow developments in this case. And uh, we'll be back again next week to talk to you, Craig, for another great uh, Lawyer to Lawyer program. We'll see you then, Bob. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.